Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. In accordance with the government's COVID-19 guidelines, we're continuing to record this podcast remotely to ensure the safety of our guests and our team. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks well-known friends three thought-provoking questions, usually washed down with three glasses of wine. But today, my guests are both totally teetotal. They became friends at work on one of the UK's most successful and long-running quiz shows. First up, she's a woman who rose through the ranks of the quizzing community with wins on Eggheads, 15 to 1 and numerous other shows before being ranked as the number two female in the World Quizzing Championships in 2016. We knew her best as the governess when she joined the chase in 2010, but fell in love with the woman behind the moniker when she entered the jungle in 2018 and spoke openly about her Asperger's syndrome and her late diagnosis at the age of 44, quickly becoming something of a hero amongst the community for the awareness that she raised during her time on the show. Joining her is a friend and a whip-smart barrister and fellow tracer, the Dark Destroyer, a man I came face-to-face with on this year's Christmas Day edition, and yes, he utterly destroyed me. He joined the chase from its inception, and as well as his work as a barrister, he's also a part-time lecturer and became the first black person to win Mastermind in 2004 before being ranked 286th in the World Quizzing Championships in 2012. More recently, he's been speaking up about the Black Lives Matter movement following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. He's written about his own experiences of police racism here in the UK and continues to fight for the black community and spread a positive message. I cannot wait to talk to them. I love them both. They are such interesting and interested people. Let's give them a call, shall we? It's Anne Hegarty and Sean Wallace. 
Sean, you are talking to me from North London and you're out in Watford. Sean, what is it you're drinking today? Um, strawberry syrup and ginger beer. Uh, I think I would make reference to that uh, uh, on the chase when Bradley asked me what my favourite tipple is. I normally have it with uh, uh, gallons of uh, water and ice. Nice. And Anne, what's, what's your tipple of choice? Well, um, I would have gone and got myself a glass of um, fizzy water plus Sainsbury's breakfast juice plus orange juice. But I got distracted. I was watching the Nicholas Brothers on YouTube instead. So I didn't <laughs> actually do that. One does. <laughs> so listen, how's, how's lockdown been for you both? For me, um, you know, obviously, you know, being restricted, not being able to go what I uh, do, what I normally do and sort of, um, you know, going into the studio, going into court. But I've coped. Um, you know, uh, I have a sort of very strict regimen uh, every single day. Get up at 7.30, do my exercises, then go into a virtual court. Uh, then um, probably write some legal documents. I've also got to do my revision. So I normally do about uh, an hour to two hour a day, mainly in the evening. We still got to keep our skills up. So uh, it's not about um, learning stuff we already know. We always try to keep ourselves up to date uh, in relation to the latest trends, the latest films, the latest uh, music. So yeah. that's what we do. A lot of pressure. And Anne, I know, because I follow you on Twitter, that you have been <laughs> quizzing like a maniac. I have been, been doing a load of online quizzes. Um, <laughs> Sean is much more self-disciplined than I am. Sean is much better at actually creating a schedule and sticking to it. I'm very haphazard. Um, I will just kind of surf around the internet and I see a quiz that looks interesting and I'll do it. And sometimes I do it simply as displacement activity. You know, I really ought to go and do the washing. Oh, wait, here's another quiz. Let's do the quiz. <laughs> that sort of thing. I guess for you guys, it's like a, it's like going to the gym. You have to keep those muscles working and yeah. retain so much information. We do, but I think the difference between uh, going to a gym, which can be laborious and really a chore, we love learning. We love feel, filling our minds with information. You know, anything which is new, yes, great. You know, we sort of store it away. So, you know, in comparison to, say, a gym, I like the gym, but... Um, as I say, so far as learning is concerned, it's been a, a lifelong passion, both myself and I'm sure for Anne. And we just love learning things new every single day. Okay, we've got combined age between us, because Anne's going to be, it's her birthday next week. So don't forget that. Anne! Yeah. It's true. Yep. Yeah. Happy so, birthday, John, Anne. John had a big birthday last month. Yeah. So yes, my... John, yours was the 60th, wasn't it? Yeah, because I'm two days older than Bradley, but... Uh, Anne's born on Bastille Day, so I was going to send her uh, a. Um, uh, we 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 always send each other a birthday greetings to you know, which that's and that shows how close we are as you know colleagues and friends. And what and what will you be sending Anne for her birthday on Bastille uh, Day? Uh, happy birthday, Anne! Lots of love, best wishes. Sure. I was thinking some maybe French cheese or you know. And, I'm fine with I'm fine with just birthday wishes, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and Anne's no fool, so you know that's that's good enough for her. So, so you, obviously, you two have a massive affection for one another. Sean, you have been described by Anne as the nicest of all the chasers. Um, how did you become friends? Was it pre pre the chase? I never knew who Anne was until I saw her on Are You an Egghead in 2009. Because I'd done it the previous year and got to the final. And when I saw Anne's performance, I said to myself, I'm so glad I did not play that lady. Because she <laughs> Probably kick my ass on Kingdom to Come. So when myself and Mark, when myself and Mark did the uh, pilot for the chase back in June 2009, and I knew they were going to take on somebody. I didn't know who they was uh, going to take on. And when I saw that they selected Anne, I thought to myself, 
What a perfect choice. But Anne's the most consistent out of us. We look up to Anne in terms of um, how to play a final chase. One thing with Anne, never gets flustered. Myself oh, and Mark, uh, we, Mark's very quick. Mark's very good. He's very quick. But you see, with speed, uh, you're prone to make a mistake. Uh, and sometimes, you know, when you try and jump in to anticipate uh, uh, an answer to a question, it could swerve the other way. And never like that. And like a metronome, tick tock, tick tock, tick. She'll listen, and that's why, uh, for me personally, um, you know, she's fantastic. I can speak with with bitter and raw experience because last year for the Christmas Day special, we did really well. Sean destroyed me on my individual round, but I was playing with Lucy Porter, Arge, and Nick Speakman. Nick Speakman, who's the biggest fan of the Chase. And we did really well. We had £86,000 banked. And you absolutely, and, and, and Bradley was saying to us, I think you've got this, guys. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be incredible. I think you've got this. No, we have not got this because the governess comes through and squashes us like ants beneath her intellectual weight. I'm so sorry, but that's my job. You can tell you have an awful lot of fun doing the show. And when did you first become aware of Sean? Um, well, I. I did Mastermind in the late 1980s. Um, and when you do Mastermind, there's a club you can join called the Mastermind Club. So I have sort of kept in touch with Mastermind ever since. So I was very aware of uh, Sean's win um, because, uh, it, you know, the, the Mastermind Club magazine was full of it. So I knew who he was from that. Um, and uh, apart from that, I didn't know anything about him. Um, yeah, your win was big news, Sean, wasn't it? 2004. It, yeah, you were the first person of colour to win Mastermind. Yeah, then right? uh, yeah, then after that, I retired. I just stopped quitting altogether because, um, to be honest, uh, you know, winning such a prestigious competition like Mastermind, which I used to watch as a kid and uh, never ever dreamed one day I'd end up being a champion. Uh, and for me, that was the ultimate. And uh, I'm always asked, what would I prefer to win? Uh, the Mastermind Championship or Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And it would always be the Mastermind Championship every time. You know why? Because really? you can spend a million pounds. And then you haven't got it anymore. So you, so, so that was that was your kind of peak, really, then, Sean, for you at that point, the 2004 win. And Anne, that's where you suddenly became aware of Sean. That's where I became aware of Sean, yes. Yeah. When I when I learned about uh, the chase, that it had just finished taping its first um, its first little pilot series, and I was told that the two chasers were the bloke I was currently talking to in the pub, who was a bloke called Mark Lebet, uh, and he said uh, the other guy is Sean Wallace, who won last time. I said, oh, yeah, I know who that is. So, um, yeah, that was uh, the next time I heard of Sean, basically. This takes me nicely to your first question. This is to you both. You are both renowned as being a font of all knowledge. But looking back on life and your own life experiences, what are some of the things that you wish you didn't know? Um, I, I'm one uh, who has had no regrets so far as my life is concerned. I, you know, even if I look back to uh, my younger self, I'm glad that the way how things have turned out for me. And um, you should never, ever have any regrets in life. Um, not at all. Um, but I think it's so, so much regrets. It's about some of the some of the knowledge that you carry around that you maybe maybe it's somebody's imparted a secret and you think oh, I just wish I didn't know that. No, um, I've never, it, I've never had that. If somebody's told me something in confidence, then I'm going to keep it in confidence. Uh, but the one thing I always say: no information is useless information, because you never know when that information uh, may come up and change your life. And I'll tell you the reason why I say that. Because the uh, as a little kid, I used to love um, you know reading things and watching things. I remember um, 
they were talking about uh, William Lyons, about the founder of Jaguar. And guess what? That was the deciding question which helped me win Mastermind. So I, I will never, ever say to anybody, um, uh, you know, I've, I've not regretted what I've learned. I've not regretted what I've been told because obviously I'm a trained lawyer. I'm trained to actually uh, keep things in confidence uh, and um, not to disclose what shouldn't be disclosed uh, for professional reasons. So from my perspective, I'd say, no, there's nothing I've uh, been told or, or, or learned which I've regret learning. That's, that's a solid answer, Sean. Um, Anne, what about you? I can't think of anything that I wish I didn't know. Um, I didn't have the happiest childhood, and it's I, I tend not to sort of dwell much on the past. One reason I'm an optimist is I tend to feel that life starts off a bit crap and just sort of generally gets better, um, because that's <laughs> been my experience. Um, so, uh, I mean, there might be experiences I wish I'd not had, um, I can't think of anything that I know and wish I didn't. I can think of things that I wish that I had known at an earlier age. That's interesting, yeah. Um, like like what, for example? I wish I'd known, I sort of, in a sense, I wish people had known more about the autistic spectrum so yes. that I could have actually sort of explained to myself uh, why I did certain things that, that nobody could make any sense of. Um including your your mother really i mean she was well, yeah, slightly basically. she was exasperated by you wasn't she in so many ways um, she just didn't get you she tried very hard to be sympathetic she did i mean uh, you know she was an affectionate person uh but there were things there were things i think she wanted to share with me things she was trying to share with me and it didn't work she loved history she ideally I think she would have been a history teacher instead of a social worker. Um, but although, I mean, I loved history, but I didn't tend to learn it the way she did. I liked to learn my history from books, and she liked to learn it by actually going to places. And I was this grumbling child who simply did not want to have to go around another bleeding castle. I would quite <laughs> happily go home and read about the castle. I didn't actually want to visit it. I think that's most children, in my experience as a mother. <laughs> that's, well, that's what I think, but she couldn't quite make sense of the fact that I, I was interested in history, but I just didn't want to experience it that way. Yeah, did you feel sometimes that your mum just um, just didn't get you in, in, in so many respects? I used to... I used to think she was sorry she'd had me. Uh, I mean, she assured me oh. that that was not the case. Um, so... Um, I guess it probably, you know, it probably was not the case. Let's just say, like I say, things get better and better. Yeah. And your dad always thought you were incredible, didn't he? He always encouraged me to do things and he was always the person who would cheer when I did do things. Yeah. Um, my mother was the sort of person who, once I'd accomplished something, she'd say, there you are, I always knew you could do it. And I'd look at her and think, yeah, but you wouldn't, you never said that before I did it. You yeah. didn't say, I know you can do it. Uh, and dad would have said that. Um, but in many ways, I mean, dad was a complete, uh, he was a deadbeat. Um, my brother oh. described my, Oh, he was. No, really. Um, I mean, he was a man who, who spent his entire life doing his best never to have more than £6,000 at a time. Because if you had more than that, then you couldn't um, get the money from the social. Which was, to him, the function of life was to live on the welfare state. Um, really? Oh, absolutely, yes. 
he he basically felt, you know, why should I work when uh, the government will give me money to not work? Really, the luckiest thing that ever happened to my father was that uh, his mother had very bad arthritis and he inherited it. So by his late 40s, he was having serious mobility issues. Uh, And thank goodness he was, because it was a great excuse for him not to have to do anything. Knowing that as you do now, how has that shaped and changed your view of your dad? Because you're you're a worker, Anne, aren't you? You've always tried to get out um, and, and get things going, even as as a acad- academic proofreader. I'm a great believer in the dignity of work. I am. I mean, I I you know I am so awed by people who can actually do things. You know, I've stood backstage in a theatre and watched the technicians, you know, press this and pull that and do this, and I'm just kind of flattening myself against the wall, trying not to get in their way because I know who <laughs> the experts are around here. You know, they're just doing everything and I'm going to go out there and act rather badly. But, uh, you know, everything will be in place. The the, the sound will be up. The lights will be on. Uh, and I just have so much respect for people that can actually do stuff. My, I would say my favourite thing is just to watch experts doing their expert thing. Do you think that your, your dad's work ethic is something that you understand? Or, you know, you, you say there's great dignity in work. Maybe well, not. Yes. I mean, he always said that the only three things that he liked doing was driving, typesetting and growing vegetables. Um, I don't think he did any of those things with any sort of amazing degree of flair. Um, And he didn't really do any of those things well enough to to earn much of a living at it. Um, No, he was was bone idle, frankly. Um, he had always, he'd just always been a, sort of like a drifter. I have old letters from my grandfather to my grandmother saying um, what grandpa couldn't understand about my father was that he just didn't seem to know what he wanted to do. Um, and their other two children were quite, I mean, my, my uncle went to university, was a civil engineer, um, and my aunt became a biology teacher. And my father... I mean, he had sort of various um, qualifications in sort of weird little things. He had a certificate as a heating engineer uh, and um, he had framed certificates that showed that he was a qualified masseur, uh, which is weird. I don't even know why. Um, <laughs> did, did, was he a masseur? Well, um, I believe so. I mean, I think it was a thing he could do, um, but he never, he couldn't settle to any sort of particular thing. I mean, when I was a child, he was he was essentially he was a self-employed carpet fitter. He got paid per carpet that he sold and fitted. Um, and when there weren't enough carpets to 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 fit, then he uh, drove a minicab. So I was used to say, my daddy drives a car with writing on the side. And the other children at school had no idea what I was talking about. Um, <laughs> but those basically were the two things that he mostly did when I was at primary school. And then uh, the carpet firm uh, Cyril Lord got bought by Co- by Courtaults, and he was made redundant. Um, insofar as you can make someone redundant when they were basically on a zero house contract anyway. Yeah. Um, and he sort of pretty much didn't really, well, he did do some bookkeeping. He was quite a keen mathematician. So he liked bookkeeping. Um, but um, he didn't really do much. And then, as I say, very fortunately, he developed arthritis uh, and was able to go on the sick for, you know, essentially the rest of his life. Lucky dad. <laughs> it's, the way you, it's the way you tell a man. It really is. Um, you, you alluded at the beginning of that response to the fact that you um, 
wish you'd spoken wish you'd known more to be able to speak more about your diagnosis as having autism yeah um, I do I do know watching you in the jungle how much good you did in the wider world as you were sat under a palm tree I'm um, sure I'm sure I did because everyone says so and one of the first things I said as I came out of the jungle was I don't want to be the poster girl for autism and everyone went yes 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 we quite understand and then they made me the poster girl <laughs> uh, but the, but at the same time, you know, I have met people who have have um, said, uh, you know, that it's that that what I did is affected. I actually met a bloke. I was doing panto in Middlesbrough last last year, um, and I literally was walking along the street, and got stopped by a couple of guys who wanted to chat to me, and one of them told me that I'd literally saved his life because oh. he had been he um, had been very distressed and suicidal, and he'd been. Um, taken into a um he'd been sectioned briefly i think uh and he had been watching me in the jungle and he he found that it just inspired him so much that he thought you know maybe maybe there is a way forward and so he didn't have to kill himself which is honestly kind of awesome really and that's massive I, yes, it is it really is but I mean, applauding. But I didn't yes do anything i sat on a log and wine I mean, no, but you see, that's, that's, the whole, that's the whole that's point of being in the public eye, uh, because, you know, um, unwittingly or otherwise, with fame does come responsibility. Mm. Uh, and so far as Anne is concerned, OK, she's right. She didn't want to be a poster girl, but she doesn't realise how many people she inspired by uh, virtue of her doing something which ordinary people would find, you know, I wouldn't do something like that. And that's why, you know, she should be commended for what she's done. And I, I totally get what Anne's saying, because, yes, I've done it. I, uh, uh, I'm not doing it so I can be the poster girl, but, you know, what I'm showing is that, you know, you shouldn't let uh, something like autism uh, be uh, debilitating in terms of your life. And that's fantastic. It's always a bit oh. disconcerting when people say that I went into the jungle in order to raise awareness around autism. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. no, no, I did it for the money. <laughs> I had a lot of money on the table. Um, sorry, but I wanted the money. <laughs> Uh, and, and but you unwittingly, know, you, you, you did an awful lot of good. And and also, oh, Anne, and, no, you really did. And I think for a lot of people as well, to know that you, I mean, you died, You were diagnosed very late in life. I was, people, only about 15 years ago. Yeah. I think that in itself helps a lot of people as well. They, because there's always this assumption that if there is something different with me or something that needs to be diagnosed, that will be discovered in childhood. And that is certainly not always the case, as you were. They didn't know about it in childhood. It wasn't till the 1990s that uh, a woman called Lorna Wing worked out that the children that Asperger had been talking about were actually on a spectrum that included the children that Canna had been talking about. Canna had described these sort of very... Uh, you know, um, catatonic, uh, uncommunicative children. And that was what people thought of as autism. Uh, and it wasn't until Lorna Wing reviewed literature, she said, no, actually, these kids, they're all, this is all the same sort of thing. That's what it is. And yeah, that was which is why we call it a spectrum. Yeah. So, you know, it, it wouldn't have been known about when I was a child. I'm not resentful because it wasn't there to be known about. Mm. So yeah. there was nothing I could do about it. I mean, I would imagine Sean has suffered more from racism than I have from ignorance about autism because, you know, people have always known about racism. Well, Sean, you wrote a brilliant piece in lockdown um, where, you, where you talked about the Black Lives Matters movement and, and your own experience of um, racism, certainly with the police, actually. Um, as I say, like Anne, um, you know, uh, because of the fact that I've um, experienced that, I don't want to put myself off as the poster boy for no. that. 
But what I want to do is to use the platform I have to actually uh, say to people, look, it does happen. Uh, and, you know, it's a lot better than it was, uh, say, 40 to 50 years ago. I mean, 40 to 50 years ago, when I told my career teacher that I wanted to be a barrister, she said, at best, I'm going to end up in prison. At worst, I'm going to end up stacking shelves. I mean, she was right about me ending up in prison. I only forgot to say that I haven't seen my client. I can go home again. Now, <laughs> I, and I'm telling you this now. I have never been told uh, directly, you can't do this because you're black. I've never been told that. There is, uh, uh, you know, racism will always be there. Uh, it's got a lot better than it was uh, before. Uh, the one thing I'm worried about in relation to this uh, campaign so far as Black Lives Matter is concerned and uh, is whether or not uh, after a while it will die down. And the one thing I don't want this to do is to die down and basically uh, be another example of uh, the stain of racism which has been a blight on our society. And the only uh, hope I have uh, is not uh, uh, for the present, but for the future generations in relation to being uh, so disgusted by the whole institution of racism that they can make a difference uh, in the future. And I might not be allowed uh, to actually witness that. But as long as, uh, as I said at the end of that piece, as long as the young are not corrupted uh, in relation to uh, life's experience and allow uh, the sort of uh, youthful vigorness, uh, youthful vigor they have in relation to wanting to make a change in the world and don't become uh, uh, today's establishment and basically pay token lip service, then uh, we can eventually arrest that development in terms of breaking the pattern of racism. But I've never been told um, you can't do this because you're black. I've been aware of the fact that uh, uh, having a, a black skin, uh, especially in the uh, back in the day, uh, would have um, said to the powers that be, you can't do this because they expected people like me to either be in prison, uh, driving buses or working in a factory. If you're a black girl, uh, either in a typing pool or in a council house, uh, uh, having uh, loads and loads of children. So, you know, the, um, being a lawyer, doctor, dentist was a complete anathema. And I'd like to think that, you know, the situation has changed over the years because you do see a lot more uh, uh, people of colour in different uh, uh, fields of profession. You actually see, uh, one thing I love about the chase, you've got an Asian gay guy, you've got a black guy, you've got, um, you've got uh, um, uh, and, and white people uh, who have, you know, very varying degrees of difficulty, unquote. So it just goes to show uh, that... Um, there has been a significant shift in, in relation to uh, attitudes, uh, in relation to disability, in relation to um, gender, and also in relation to race. You know, when we, get, if we ever get to the ideal whereby, you know, it's completely eradicated in terms of uh, uh, gender inequality, racial inequality, and disability, um, you know, that might be a utopian that. Uh, <laughs> may never ever exist but uh we, oh, are well, but we have to strive for it don't we we have yeah, to strive for it have. And, and that's why i try to say to you now uh the changes may not happen in our lifetime it may happen in future generations to come uh but you know if uh, if you know if change is made now then hopefully we can see in years to come um a complete level playing field uh, but you know the, the one thing which uh, uh always is um a, a concern it takes a tragedy to spark uh, uh, a reaction. Uh, whereas, as I say, we shouldn't have to uh, wait for uh, a tragedy to happen. No, we, we should shouldn't. do it now. Absolutely. 100%. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite 
of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Next question for you both. You are both top of your games professionally and clearly overachievers in terms of whatever you apply yourselves to. You can't just be good at it. You have to be almost the best in the world. And, and you put yourself in, that, in those competitions to be ranked as such. But I wondered, what do you consider to be your own greatest personal achievements? For me, uh, qualifying as a barrister. Uh, because as a young boy, I was like the Muhammad Ali of my class. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be the greatest. But if you talk the talk, you've got to be able to walk the walk. Yeah. And, and um, uh, unlike Anne, um, I, was, I, I, I was gifted academically, but there's a difference between having a computer-like mind and knowing how to be a student. And I didn't know how to pass exams. Uh, you know, you can actually... Uh, you know, recite chapter and verse, but that's not what they're, what they're looking for uh, uh, in an exam, especially under the pressure of time. And it took a lot of, it took me five times, four times to pass O-level English language. Did it? Yes, it did. And that's why I wrote the autobiography, because I want people to realize, people look at me now, they thought I was born clever. No, you're not born clever. You're natured and you're nurtured in relation to, uh, uh, and you've got to have it within yourself to want to actually achieve something. When I was a young boy, I, uh, in my house, um, I've got a mural on my wall called My Inspiration, ranging from people like Sojourner Truth, Bob Marley, uh, Jesse Owens, because these were people of colour. These are people who I looked up to. When I was a young boy, the most famous footballer in the world was black. The most famous sportsman in the world was black. For me, I knew who Martin Luther King was when I was 11 years old. I knew who mm-hmm. Martin Luther Mandela was. So these were people who I looked up to and I had a great deal of love and respect for. And I said to myself, if I can achieve a quarter of what they've achieved in life, I would have made something of myself. We as chasers are probably one of the most recognised faces in the country. And people Excellent. look up to us now as role models. Uh, I, I'm a bit uncomfortable with the phrase role model because um, uh, I'm human just like everybody else. And the one thing when you put a role model on a pedestal, if they fall from grace, they fall swift. So I say to people, I'm a goal model. Right, look at the achievements where I've oh, I like that. I right. love that look, goal model. Yeah, look at the achievements I've set, but don't just match my achievements, surpass them. 
Uh, and if you do surpass my achievements, you know what? You pay me the greatest compliment you could have done. You know why? Because my philosophy must be right. The success I've had later on in life, and I'm glad I've had it later on in life as opposed to having it young. Because if you have success young uh, and uh, success fades, uh, you spend your lifetime trying to switch on the fame of uh, uh, switch on the light of fame. Whereas uh, when I won Mastermind at the age of 44, I sat there for two minutes. They had to, they had to film the complete ending. They had to change because I sat there, tears of joy were just running down my face. Right, and I thought to myself, what are people going to think when they see what's happened? The first time my friends knew, the first time my mum knew that I won Mastermind was when she saw it on the telly. I didn't tell a soul, and there was really? one, yeah, didn't I was in Jamaica because I knew um, you know it's between it's six months between the actual filming and, and the actual broadcast, and I knew it was going to change my life. But the one thing I was determined that fame was not going to change me, and the second reason I didn't tell anybody because it was the closest victory at the time, and I wanted all my friends to go through the same agonies I went through. So when, <laughs> so when I came. <laughs> When I came back from Jamaica, uh, there was a press pack outside my house and I left my back door open uh, and I walked past them, walked right in and uh, came back home. Uh, and uh, the first person I showed a trophy to was my mum. And I remember uh. right, she was crying, but she gave me a, a big clump around the ear because I didn't tell her where I went. Because when they showed me the when they showed the semi final, I was at uh, Heathrow Airport. I said, mum, I need to get out of the country. She goes, what's wrong with you? And I said, I'll tell you in a week. <clears throat> Put a phone in. <laughs> She was crapping herself for a whole week. And on the <laughs> night of the grand final, she got 100 phone calls. And my dad uh, was, in a, was in a working man's club and they gave him a standing ovation. I would have loved to have seen that because that would have been nice. But um, I wanted him to go through the same agonies I went through. And what about you, Anne? What, what do you consider to be your own personal greatest achievement? Um, I don't think I've ever done anything that has made so much of a difference in my life as actually getting the job on the chase, frankly. Really? Uh, I think probably, you know, the day when the phone call came, um, she tried to ring me the previous night uh, and uh, I'd not been there and I rang her back the next day. Is this uh, the producer? And, yeah, and she said, yeah. uh, you've got the job. I'd had to go through four separate auditions uh, yeah. and was kind of on tenterhooks about it. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this really is the thing that's changed my life. Sean, you see, has got a fallback career. Sean can do something other than being a chaser. I basically, this is what I do. Um, mm. I was, uh, you know, if I were to try to go back to being an academic proofreader, I mean, technology's moved on so much in the last 10 years. I really couldn't. And, uh, you know, this this seems to be at, uh, my job and, and excellent. So when the chase came along, you were you were an academic proofreader, which means that you would be checking facts, making sure that everything yeah. stood up before something went to print on these big academic tomes, you know. So there, there's yes, they were. Well, a... I mean, they, they weren't sort of really dreary reference books or anything. They were sort of books of um, postmodern scholarship uh, regarding history and politics and things like that. Um, and I had to make sure, uh, you know, that, that the that the prose flowed properly, spelling, grammar, and punctuation. Um, that it, there was consistency; that words were spelt the same way throughout the book. I was good at it. What I wasn't good at really was sort of keeping up with the paperwork. I wasn't good. I've never been good at multitasking. I can't really juggle things. I need to sort of do one thing from start to finish. 
and then do another thing from start to finish. And, you know, it just doesn't always work like that. Um, so I was, um, I was struggling to get things finished in time because I was getting distracted by other things. And then uh, I was letting clients down and that meant I was losing work. Um, so, um, yeah, I was struggling. Uh, what happened was that um, my flat in Manchester is a housing association flat. I own half of it and rent the other half. And I hadn't been keeping up with my rent. So the um, woman in charge of making sure people do that uh, knocked on the door. And she sort of just basically walked in um, and closed the door behind her and said, right, we are going to get this sorted out. Um, and she got hold of this fantastic social worker called Jeff McKenzie, um, who sort of basically rescued me. I've talked about Jeff uh, in the past and how brilliant he was. I've not previously mentioned that he was black. I suppose I sort of didn't really think that that was relevant, but I'm quite happy in, in you know, the current atmosphere to say, yeah, you know, this black guy sort of basically saved my life. And he was far more competent um, and efficient than I was. And he knew all the ways to get the, the water board to lay off me uh, and to get banks to lay off me um, and, you know, to kind of get my finances back on track. And he was brilliant. I think hardship and adversity, right, has been the making of us. And everybody, I don't care who you are, everybody needs that luck, right, to actually uh, show their talent for what it's truly worth. I had that when I started doing quizzing. Um, I won Mastermind. I never, I never thought in a million years I'd something to do that. But that wasn't luck, Sean. You worked at that. Yeah, you do. But yeah. Yeah, you do. You know, you do. But still, you need the right questions to answer correctly. Yeah, you do. You're right? also right, right there, Sean. You're okay, both right. 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 So you do need that. No matter how talented you are, you still need that slice of luck uh, for your life to go in a different direction. So when I sat there, uh, you know, and I thought to myself, Sean, I remember all the difficult times. I thought, wow, what's going to happen now? Your life's going to change. It is going to change, but it's not going to change you as an individual. I mean, obviously, Jeff came in and and sounds like a little bit of an angel walked into your life and just oh, went, okay. He was just brilliant. I can't uh, tell he, you how marvelous he was. Did he? And did he was he just reassuring. Yeah, he what he 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 just sort of said, you know, we can fix this, we can get out of this, and he and he listened as I sort of explained why things had happened. And obviously, I was terribly embarrassed. You know that that um, that I owed money to people, that I everything had got so out of control, um, and that you know I, I thought to myself, I'm supposed to be an intelligent person, uh, and, I, and I'm just so ashamed of myself. And he was like so reassuring and like you know we will sort this out, don't worry. And he was just fantastic. You know I knew what it was like when when publishers didn't pay me soon mm. enough. So you know I had. No excuse for the fact that sometimes I wasn't paying my bills. I think people should pay their bills. I do. Um, and, you know, it's, it's when you know you are not measuring up to your own standards, mm -hmm. then, yeah, that's, that's a source of shame. It is. This is your final question now. And I, I know you both have um, an appetite for history in as much as it serves you so well uh, with the questions that you have to take on. Which historical figure would you like to be and why? Me? My favourite historical figure of all time was Alexander the Great. Right. Why is that? Because uh, uh, by the time he was uh, 25, he was uh, virtually the ruler of the known world. Never lost a battle. 
um, was a brilliant strategist, was a brilliant commander, uh, um, was uh, kind when he needed to be, was ruthless when he had to be uh, in order to actually uh, maintain his position. And he, ever since I was a little boy, I was fascinated by Alexander the Great, even to this day. Even to this day. Really? Absolutely. He only lived to be about 32, didn't he? Yeah, 30, he died at 32, sadly. Yeah. Uh, but he... He's twice his age. I know. He didn't He didn't die um, in battle. He died through overindulgence. Uh, really? Which, which of course. Way to go. Which, which, which really killed him. But uh, he commanded the love and respect of his troops who followed him uh, from you know a small town in Macedonia right across Asia. Uh, and for me, um, he will always be uh, my favourite historical figure. When did you first fall uh, in, in kind of love with him, Sean? I'd say from, I was aware of Alexander the Great. I, I've always loved history ever since I was 11 years old, ever since I was about seven years old. Uh, my dad wasn't a literate man, but the one thing he taught me uh, uh, was to uh, uh, be aware of the news uh, and be aware of the world around you. So I, I was reading newspapers when I was seven years old. I was aware of things like Martin Luther King. I knew who uh, uh, Robert Kennedy was. I knew. I, I lived through all uh, the Vietnam War. I remember all those type of. Uh, I remember watching the landing on the moon. Followed every uh, presidential election since 1968. So, uh, and my dad bought a an encyclopedia one time, and I used to read that incessantly. By the time I was ten, I could recite all the kings and queens of England, going back to uh, uh, Egbert in 823. Uh, so everybody has a passion for subjects, and mine was history. And all the quizzes, all the top quizzes of the world, the reason why they're good is because their history is good. History is the story of the origins of the beginning. So if you're interested in the history or origins of a subject, uh, it uh, fuels your fascination to want to know, how did that subject develop? Yeah. The subject of literature, the subject of music. How did that? And that's how quizzes become good. Because the uh, love of uh, how things began from the or from its origins uh, stems from your love of history. What about you, Anne? It feels to me like you're actually asking two different questions here. You might be asking me, who is my favourite historical character? Or you might be asking me, which historical character do I wish I'd been? Yes. And I've never, I've never really imagined being anyone else. I certainly don't seriously think that I would like to have lived in any other era. I don't want to live at a time that doesn't have antibiotics and anesthetics, really, because, <laughs> you know, like I say, life gets better and better. Yeah. Um, and, uh, You're you so know, pragmatic. I like having things like the internet and so on. I don't, I don't want to go back and live in a puddle, really. I'm, I'm fine with not doing that. Um, but if we are asking about who my favourite historical character is, I yeah. always say my favourite historical character is Dr Johnson because I just feel I could imagine sitting down with him and chatting to him. And I always imagine him sort of coming, I don't imagine going back to the 18th century, I imagine him coming forward into now and me kind of showing him everything and, and taking him for a ride in a car because he used to like being taken for a ride in a horse-drawn carriage. So, uh, you know, it'd be quite nice to sort of sit him in the car and take him for a spin down the motorway. Um, and things like, I'd, I'd love to sort of expose him to things that happened just after he died, like um, the whole romantic movement, the um, Wordsworth publishing, Wordsworth and Coleridge publishing the lyrical ballads. He was an expert on poetry and literature. And I would love to see what he would have made of how everything started changing just a few years after he died. And if he could actually see, if he could have seen this coming. 
I just love to have conversations with him about that sort of thing. I can see why you would hit it off with him. So just just for those that maybe have um, not an informed knowledge of who Dr. Johnson is, it's Samuel Johnson you're referring to, yeah. who was a literary He was an 18th, was an 18th century, um, born in Litchfield to a not very prosperous family. Uh, and basically... Um, Walk, he basically walked down to London as a boy, uh, did a lot of um, freelance writing and su sustained himself that way. And then he sat down and wrote an encyclopedia, uh, not encyclopedia, I'm so sorry, a dictionary of the English language. And it is still regarded. When I was at university studying linguistics, um, we had a, a module on dictionaries and uh, it is still regarded as an absolutely seminal dictionary. Um, and the way that he researched the origins of language is still a model for, for how we do it now. So that made him famous and got him a load of money. And then um, he started... And that was, that's the, if, if people want to look that up, Anne, it's, the, it's yeah. a dictionary of the English language. It's not... That's right. Uh, that's that's what it's listed as. Yeah. And he did that in the sort of, so he was born 1709. At what age would he have, have written his first, <laughs> written uh, the dictionary? This all happened for... Around the middle of the middle of the 18th century, I don't have exact dates. I think it's um, 17, Sean is the guy who knows his dates. I think it's 1755. There you go. It probably is. That sounds likely. Um, and what okay. he did after that basically was sort of spend the rest of his life sitting in pubs talking. Um, and he had this uh, circle of friends, including this bumptious young Scotsman, uh, who everyone thought was a bit of a pain. Um, and Johnson thought he was a bit of a pain, but he quite liked him and they hit it off together and they used to go on holiday together. And then um, after Johnson died, this bumptious young Scotsman, James Boswell, wrote um, Johnson's biography. And um, Boswell's Life of Johnson is just one of the greatest books you will ever read. And he just comes across as this vivid character. I mean, that's the basis on which I wish I'd met him, just kind of sitting in a pub talking. You would just love to have sat in a pub talking to him. You know, there's loads of stuff um, where I would have disagreed with him. Uh, he was quite an old Tory, quite reactionary. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, he didn't think that the Americans should get their independence. He probably would have really? been absolutely, he would have been deeply shocked by the French Revolution. We could have had long conversations about the French Revolution. Um, and uh, there's, there's an awful lot of stuff, you know, that I would, the way I see it, I would have had to educate him on. Do you know what I love about listening to you there, Anne? Is I'm I'm watching you to the screen on the, my left and Sean to the screen on my right, and Sean is nodding furiously as soon as you hit a data point, a date. Um, mm. You know, a, a, because you both know this this mm. this knowledge is shared, mm. and you're passionate love, about I it. Love. The pair of you loved. I can see that. But Sean is much better. Sean is the one who remembers the dates, and quite often I I'm not all that clear on dates. And it's lovely to see that shorthand that you two have, and a shared passion for history. Oh, thank you both so much. I have loved talking to you. Thank um, you. It's so nice to not be up against you as well. That's right. <laughs> okay. And, and Anne, I cannot wait to see you back on The Chase. That would be excellent. One thing, we'll, we'll be back and hopefully we've uh, completed a rare double of the TV Choice Awards being the best oh, yeah. show and the best entertainment show. So, Oh, yeah. it is so good. We've got a lot to look forward to. You really have. Everybody Thank go and vote, please. Yes. Go and vote. Go and vote. Yes. White Wine Question Time is produced by me, Kate Thornton, and Richard Hatherall for Yahoo UK. Editing is by Callum Goddard Mucklow, and our music, as always, is by Andy Bell, whose back catalogue is available on iTunes or Spotify. If 
you feel so inclined, please do leave us a review and rate us. It really does help other people to discover the podcast. And if you fancy a chat with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WhiteWineQT. We'll be back next week with more incredible guests. Until then, stay safe and take care. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.